Preface and Chapter 1 of Forgotten Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya Sethi. Forgotten Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Preface Forgotten Gold. Calling on this ailing age to eschew the sins and imitate the virtues of Mr. Jasper Festing, sometime fellow of Trinity College in Cambridge, and later an officer in Her Majesty's Sea Service. By this showing forth of certain noteworthy passages from his life in the said university and elsewhere, and especially his connection with the beginning of the Puritan party, together with the particular relation of his voyage to Numbedua under the renowned navigator the late Sir Francis Drake Knight, written by himself and now first set forth. Preface It is not to be denied that the usual practice in ushering into the world a long-ridden manuscript has been to give some account of its existence in its former state and of the manner in which it came to light for sufficient reasons that course will not be followed in the present case should any one in consequence be brought to doubt the genuineness of these memoirs it is hoped that it will be sufficient to refer him to a curious little work entitled sir francis drake revived which contains a very sprightly account of that renowned navigator's so-called third voyage to the indies being that in which he attempted Nombu de Dua, and which, as the title leaf recites, is faithfully taken out of the report of Master Christopher Seeley, Ellis Hickson, and others who were in the same voyage with him by Philip Nichols, preacher, reviewed also by Sir Francis Drake himself before his death, and much holpen and enlarged by divers notes, with his own hand here and there inserted, and set forth by Sir Francis Drake, his nephew, now living, 1626. So closely do the present memoirs follow that account that it cannot reasonably be doubted that Mr. Festing was one of those others who had a hand in Preacher Nichols' book. Although neither he nor Mr. Waldeve are mentioned as being of the expedition, when we consider the circumstances under which they sailed, it is only natural to suppose that they made it a condition of their assistance that their names should be suppressed in the published narrative. And in view of this supposition, it is not unworthy to be noted that Nichols made no mention of a captain of the land soldiers or a merchant as sailing with Drake, although it is known that these officials formed part of all well-ordered expeditions to the Spanish main of course some discrepancies will be found between the two accounts but they are unimportant and seem rather to confirm the general accuracy of mr festing's memoirs than to cast any suspicion upon them for instance nichols gave the name of the man who spoiled all in the first attempt on the hekuas as pike but there can be no doubt that by an obvious word-play which would commend itself to an elizabethan punster the name of the infantry weapon was substituted by that of culverin out of tenderness for the old sergeant's memory such instances might be multiplied indefinitely but it appears better to suffer the curious to note 
and comment upon them for themselves. Should any such be tempted to pursue the subject further, he will find an interesting account of Signor Giampietro Pugliano in a letter of Sir Philip Sidney's, who describes the esquire of the emperor's stables in much the same terms as those which Sergeant Culverin was in the habit of using. In fact, Mr. Festing's memoirs receive confirmation from contemporary sources too numerous to set out here. He mentions, indeed, only one event of any historical or biographical importance which has not been found either related or referred to by other trustworthy writers, and that is the piratical attack of Drake upon the Antwerp caravel, an exploit about which all parties concerned no doubt took good care to keep their own counsel. These considerations, it is felt, will be enough to carry conviction to what Mr. Festing would have called all honest kindly readers. To the merciful dealing of such his memoirs are now therefore committed without further excuse, defence or apology. J.C. Thames Ditton, October 1887 End of Preface Forgotten Gold, Chapter 1 Erasmus, in his famous praise of folly, has uttered a sharp note against those scribbling fops who think to eternize their memory by setting up for authors and especially those who spoil paper in blotting it with mere trifles and impertinences. Yet have I, that was none before, resolved to turn author and set down certain passages in my life that I have thought not unworthy to be remembered. Many who share my respect for him, who is rightly called the honour of learning of all our time, forgetting therein, as it must be said, all tenderness for me, have marvelled openly that I listen not to his wisdom, but will still be spending paper, time and candles upon such trifles and impertinences as he condemns. It were better, they say, for a scholar to take in hand some weighty matter of religion or philosophy or civil government. But stay, good friends, till I bid you show me how it were better. Such treatises are ordinance of power, and are we sure that of late years scholars have not been forging too many weapons for dancers to arm themselves withal in these wordy wars that now be? A harcubus is a dangerous toy in unskilled hands, and so I know may be a discourse of religion or philosophy or civil government to unlearned controversialists of whom god knows there is a mighty company in this present time so i pray you consider whether erasmus has not here a little dishonoured his scholarship and sounded his note false should he not rather have placed amidst all other folly that he praises these very trifles and impertinences also with which a scholar may seek to comfort his solitude I am the more moved to the part I have chosen, because it is not clear that all I have to tell shall be found wholly trifling and impertinent. Indeed, I think it may contain something noteworthy, not in respect of myself, or even of that noble gentleman whose story this is as much as mine, but rather in respect of that very mirror and pattern of manhood, who was my good friend in those days, though now with God, and whom of all I ever knew or heard of, I honour as in courage unsurpassed, in counsel unequalled, and in constancy passing all I ever deserved. 
so much by way of preface or apology and now with a good wish on all honest kindly readers let me to my tale as with many others my life it may be said began with my father's death till then i had been kept in so great subjection that save in my books i had hardly lived for he was an austere grave man of the reformation party and one whom the fires of mary's reign had hardened against all popery so that towards the end of his life he became what is now called a puritan and that of a strict sort too outwardly to his great friends in the country he was still good company for not to speak more because of the honour i bear him he was a worldly man and not one to use a shoe-horn to drag ill-fitting opinions on to men of quality nor in any way to seek a martyr's crown his chiding and severity were kept from me and his servants and tenants who were all hard-pressed though in truth not beyond what justice would warrant where mercy lay aside it was a hard case for me because of my mother i had not even a memory the same hour that i was born she died leaving my father alone in the world save for me it was then that he most changed they told me but in no respect showed his grief so much as in misliking me yet i think i loved him for all his chiding and sharpness indeed i had so little else to love at least i know that i was sobbing bitterly when my old nurse came to tell me that his short sickness had come suddenly to an end for he had but a little time past been seized with a quartan ague which carried off so many that same glorious year that our great queen came to her throne it was a cold grey afternoon in january i was sitting hungry and forgotten in my favourite nook in the dim old library it was an ancient low room which my father had left standing when he had rebuilt the rest of the place in the new style soon after he had purchased it it had been a house of austin canons which fell to the lot of some spent thrift courtier in king henry's time which gentleman getting past his depth in my father's books with overmuch borrowing was at last driven to release the place to him so it was that the old monastery became our dwelling but this the canon's refectory was all that was left of the former buildings at one end there was a deep recess where i could sit and see the dreary darkness settling down on the distant medway and the upchurch marshes and the saltings it was but a sad prospect at any time in winter and made me sad though i would never sit elsewhere with my books i must have loved it because my father never came to chide me there and because on that cold stone sill i could sit and sob undisturbed over the sorrows of men long dead and i now sat sobbing over my own when cicely came hurriedly to me the lord has taken him master jasper she cried as well as her sobs would allow the lord has taken him before i could call you to see how sweet an ending he made god a mercy on him for he was a just and upright gentleman and one that dallied not with mercy and died a good reformation man ay that he did and would see never a priest of them all with their hocus-pocus and jack-in-the-box and their square caps and their latins when the end was coming he cried out god a mercy on me and all usurers once or twice he did 
for the usurers seemed to trouble him so i opened the windows and bade him not trouble himself with the rogues at such a time but get on sweetly with his dying that was a comfort to him i know for he grew quiet then and passed away with but one more cry for mercy on them may the rogues be better for a good man's prayers that he shall pray no more for tis all past tis all past and you are squire of longdean now master jasper and maybe your worship would like to see how your father lies i dried my tears then for i had been dreading the summons to see him die and felt glad that i was spared the sight i was able to follow cicely into the great chamber where he lay and look bravely for the last time on the wise hard face it was when i came out that i felt indeed my life had begun for there stood old miles a steward who had married my nurse bowing respectfully a wise man has gone this day sir he said and a godly and a rich may the lord in his mercy give your worship strength to bear his loss and walk in his footsteps it lifted me up strangely to hear him speak thus for i was but 14 years old and had never been called your worship before except sometimes on saturdays by the medway fisher lads who knew i had growths in my wallet then to hear miles thus call me was a thing i could hardly understand he who had barely a word for me except to scold me when he caught me bird nesting in the orchard or swear after me in breathless chase when i flew my hawk at his pigeons as happened more than once when harry came to see me and my father was away it is time i should tell of harry my friend and rival my almost brother for his life was and i thank god for his mercy still is in spite of all the wrong i did so bound up in mine that i cannot tell my tale without unfolding his he was the only son of sir fluke waldeve a gentleman of good estate and ancient family near rochester in kent and a good neighbour of ours ever since my father had come to live at longdean sir fluke and he had been fast friends not that they had much to make them so for sir fluke was an old soldier and courtier of king henry's day and had named his only son after him as the pattern of manhood from the like cause he swore roundly rasping tudor oaths at all that displeased him ay and much that he loved too from mere habit but above all at puritans and those who thought reformation should go further than his idol king henry had carried it in all ways the knight was a man of the old time while my father was held one of the new men whom many thought to be ruining the country he had been a wool merchant in london and had made much money at trading and by other ways that merchants use even i used to wonder to see them so friendly and used to watch them by the hour together through a hole i knew of in the yew hedge as they sat drinking in our orchard after dinner in the summer time sir fluke was so round and red with his curly beard and his sunburnt face and his merry blue eyes and my father was so pale and spare and grave i wondered how men could be so little alike and wondered how it would have been with me if that rough old knight had been my father instead of the courtly merchant by his side by this light i have heard sir fluke burst out in the middle of their talk i marvel every day what a god's name makes me love you nick 
your sour face should be as much a rebel in my heart as your damned french claret in my stomach were it not that you were so good a tippler i would say that at heart you were no better than a pestilent pragmatical rogue of a calvinist nay fook my father would say quickly in his courtly way being as it seemed in no way offended that the old knight should speak to him so roughly for they always said my father like other merchants who had thriven was slow to take offence with men of ancient lineage and good estate what matter that our outward seeming is different that is only because our lots were cast differently not what we are but what we love is the talk of friends i by god's power sir fluke would cry you have hit it now most nicely nick you love a long fleece and so do i you love a fair stretch of meadowland and so do i you love a well-grown tree and so do i i and you rogue you love a full money-bag and so by this light do i mas but i run myself out of breath with our likings and sack must run me back again indeed my father would answer were it only our delights that we share i think it would be bond enough without a common sorrow to help it ay ay nick that is it the old knight would murmur sad in a moment for harry's mother too had died in childbed but speak not of that god rest her sweet soul what is there divided that she could not bring together and so they would fall into silence a while till sir fluke's eye was dry again and his thoughts had wandered away from the beautiful woman whom late in life he had loved and married and lost to some new plan he had for mending his estate upon which he wanted a friend's counsel it is little to be wondered at then that a great friendship grew up also between harry and me we were little more alike i think than our fathers for on harry's descended all the sunny beauty of his mother indeed afterwards when as a page at court he personated the princess cleopatra in a mask before the queen's grace an old lord who was in presence swore it must be the gentle lady waldive alive again he was light and active too and of quick and nimble wit and as long as i can remember could always give the fisher lads more than he took either with fist or tongue but more than all this it was his gentle loving spirit that won and kept my love in spite of our boyish quarrels ay and of a greater thing than that when i think of his noble nature which never allowed him to turn a span's breadth from the path of honour the lofty patience wherewith he bore my shortcomings the tender sympathy i won from him in all my troubles i can still kneel down and thank god that gave me such a friend to carry a light before me in the way a gentleman should walk so what wonder then that i loved him as i loved no one else save one of whom i shall forbear yet to speak until my tale compels me then i must seeing it was surely god's will that tried me so sore had harry been other than he was at the time at least of which i now speak i must yet have loved him for it was my father's will that i should jasper he would say to me sometimes when i had been reading at home close your book and ride over to ashstead to bid young waldive go hawking with you to-morrow you must see more of him for no 
I would have you no merchant or parson or plain scholar, but a gentleman. You will have money, and he shall teach you how to spend it like a gentleman. Make him your friend, and be you his, or you shall smart for it. So away I would go blithely enough, for those days with Harry were the only happy ones I knew, though it must be said that they often ended sadly with a rebuke and even a chastisement from old Miles, till one day my father, seeing him, told him he would not have gainsaid any prank I played in company with Sir Fluke's son. This I told Harry next day he came, thinking to strangely delight him, but instead he looked grave and swore one of his father's oaths that he would never fly hawk at Miles Pigeons again. Such was my friend Harry Waldive when, in the first year of our most glorious queen's reign, God bless with fullest measure, my father died and I began my life. End of chapter 1 Recording by Shreya Sethi